Father God, we do indeed come uh, just as we are. Uh, We know that we are in need of you, and as we lift up these prayer requests to you, Lord, we know that uh, uh, we are helpless to do things, but you are uh, powerful and majestic, and so we turn to you, Lord, and as we turn our hearts to you and your word this morning, we pray, first of all, that you would just work in us, open up your word to us, open your hearts our hearts to you, to your word. We want to be changed by you. We want to be formed by you and molded by you. And so we pray that you would use our time together this morning for that, God. And and we want to lift up the church in Afghanistan, Lord, our brothers and sisters there, whether they're missionaries who are under the radar or indigenous Christians who have turned to you, Lord. We pray for protection, first and foremost, for the church there. And yet we also want to pray for boldness for them, that they would trust in you live in obedience to you in spite of their circumstances, God. And, and we're privileged to lift up some of our own faith family. We want to continue to pray for Jean Reister and her health, that you would bring your healing hand to be on her. We pray for Cindy Hartle and her ongoing recovery. And we want to lift up Pastor Logan and his family as they're transitioning their daughter Riley to college, that you would just bless their trip and their, their time together. Bless her as she begins this new adventure in school. We want to pray really for all of our students and families that are beginning new schools, new school years, and that you would just smooth those transitions, bring, uh, bring this to be a year of real growth and development for our families and for our community, Lord. And, and we want to lift up uh, Jennifer's parents as well and their recovery from COVID as it uh, lingers on, give them health, and we're just grateful for the medical workers who've been looking out for them. We pray, God, for our upcoming ministries that will be launching over the next few weeks, classes, youth, kids' ministry, our, our growth groups. We just commit all of those things to you, Lord. And I want to pray especially for our, our worship night this evening, that you would uh, just use it excuse me, to, uh, to spark a passion in us, Lord. Use that time to just uh, uh, awaken a passion for us to serve, to worship you with our whole hearts and and God, we'd be remiss if we didn't pray for our global ministry partners, uh, the Sorensons, just grateful for in this, uh, this time of COVID, grateful that they've been able to use technology to stay connected to the Bible college there in Uganda. And we pray for guidance for them as they seek a retirement center that really suits the unique needs they have. And, and we want to pray for Ruth, her upcoming neurology appointment that's tomorrow. God, you would make clear a path through that appointment that they should uh, pursue for her care, whatever that looks like. We just uh, ask that you would be clear to them, and, and we ask that you would open up a way for them to return to Uganda before the end of the year, as they've asked us to pray for that. And finally, God, we do want to pray for Pastor Thad and his family. Is there a way that you would be at work in strengthening them, restoring them, rejuvenating them, impassioning them for future ministry, Lord? All these things we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, this, this passage of Scripture this morning, it's complicated. It's been called one of the most complex sentences in the Bible. And so, as we explore it in detail this morning, I, I think some background about this book is really going to be helpful for us to get our, 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 uh, wrap our minds around it. And first of all, John is the author of this book. He wrote the Gospel of John as well as this letter, some other books. And, and he was an eyewitness to everything that Jesus said and did. He had his life changed by Jesus, and as a result, he spent his life passing that on, telling and teaching people about Jesus. Jesus changed his life. He wanted to share that reality with as many people as possible. And after 
uh, Jesus died, then John relocated to Ephesus, this city that's mentioned quite a bit in the Bible. And the, the church in Ephesus there had a really wild history. Uh, it started with a bang. I mean, some super crazy stuff went down there. Paul arrived in town. You can read about this in the book of Acts. He arrived, and right away, there's this uh, just amazing stuff happening. People are being healed, and evil spirits are being cast out of people, this kind of stuff. And, you know, things like that, they don't stay secret for very long, and word starts to get around. And the book of Acts tells us that everybody living in Ephesus was paying attention. It says, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. So they didn't always like what was happening, they didn't understand it, but they knew that Jesus was somehow behind it all. And there was amazing things that happened in Ephesus when the gospel began to take hold there. They had this big event where they burned a bunch of scrolls that were used in pagan worship. So these big public demonstrations where people were pledging their allegiance to Jesus and throwing off false gods. I mean, nobody in Ephesus could escape the fact that the growing church there was causing a lot of disturbance in town. In fact, some local businessmen took particular notice. There were a group of silversmiths, these, these guys who worked with silver, and, and one of their big moneymakers was making these little statues, statues, uh, idols to these false gods. Logan actually mentioned this last week too, but, but that was their kids' college fund, right? Making and selling these idols, and they noticed, man, their bottom line was taking a really big hit ever since Jesus was on everybody's lips. So they start to stir up trouble in order to turn people away from Jesus and back to these idols, and the result is that the whole town is in a huge riot. There's chaos. There's confusion. They're trying to crush the church once and for all. They just want things to return to normal. Maybe you can relate to that sentiment. Maybe you're sick of all the chaos. You just want things to return to normal. But that's exactly where they found themselves. And so I share all this with you because I want you to understand something about this church in Ephesus. This church that, that first read this letter that we're going to be reading, these people who made up the church there, they had a big decision to make. It wasn't like here where they could decide to go to church or not, and they figured nobody would really care one way or another. No, no, for these people to continue to gather as a church, it was a big sacrifice. Now, there's always things that make it challenging to gather as a church, but remember, this is a series called Vital Signs, and the decision they had to make was, vital. It centered around one very critical thing, their relationship with Jesus. That was their decision point. Would they let their relationship with Jesus change their priorities and their actions and their relationships? Because as they made this decision, they were, they were crossing a line in the sand, drawing a division between themselves and, and their family or, or their community. They had to make a real commitment to follow Jesus, and it was going to cost them something. Maybe their job, maybe family ties. I mean, everybody in town understood that following Jesus would put you on the wrong side of some pretty powerful people in Ephesus. So it was not an easy decision to make. And before they crossed that line, before they made that commitment, they had to know, I mean, really know that they were on the side of truth. So that's the church that John is writing to here in 1 John. Except it's not, because things had changed this church that started with such a bang over time, things changed. They had such strong commitments to follow Jesus no matter the cost, but, but Paul even told them that it would change. He saw the change coming. In the very next chapter of Acts, right after we hear about this riot, 
Paul is saying farewell to these Ephesian uh, church leaders, the elders, and he knows he's never going to see them again, and he gives them a warning, Acts chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. I put the passage in your uh, notes there, but, but listen to what Paul says to these church elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. What I really want us to notice in this passage is Paul's warning to them. I mean, even after all the excitement of beginning this church, even after they all had to, to draw that line in the sand to give up on their family or community or whatever in order to follow Jesus, Paul tells them now that fierce wolves are going to come in among them and start to tear the church apart from the inside. There's going to be problems and big, fierce problems. And if this was the last word we had about this church in Ephesus, man, we'd be really wondering what was going on. Like, this is a cliffhanger kind of a comment. We'd want to know, like, well, how did it end? Did they resist the wolves or, or what finally happened? Well, this is not the last word we hear about this church. There's, there's one more mention of this church in Ephesus that's worth looking up. At the very end of the Bible, book of Revelation, again, you don't have to turn there, but there's one more place where this church is mentioned we want to look at. Revelation chapter 2, and in this book, John, same guy who wrote 1 John, which we will get to, I promise, that same guy wrote Revelation. And in that book, John records Jesus' very own words to this church. Look at how Jesus assesses them. He says, verse 3, you've persevered. And you've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. So they've persevered. They've fought off some wolves. They've been through some things together. They're still there. That's good. But Jesus tells them that that fire in their belly, that line in the sand, passion is gone. They've lost their first love, he says. And it's, it's that church, that lukewarm church that John is writing to here in 1 John. He's writing to that second, maybe even third generation of Christians, not that first generation that was so passionate and resolute. He's writing to a church that's really been through some stuff. It's grown a little bit complacent, a little tired maybe. Some of them have maybe been around when Paul rolled into Ephesus all those years ago, did amazing stuff, but some of those folks are pretty old by now. And some of them, maybe they've been taught by John, one of Jesus' closest friends. And some of the people reading this letter, they didn't even know what they were there for. They've been hearing conflicting things about Christianity, just trying to figure out the truth. And he's writing to tell them what is real, what's most essential, what do they need to pay attention to. He's writing to give them some vital signs. What do they really need to know at the core level? So as John writes to this church, it's a church that's a little bit confused. And they're confused about some pretty big stuff. They're confused about their own identity, their own purpose, about some real fundamentals of the faith. This is a, a church that's at a crucial time in its life. And, and I think one of the things that makes this letter so helpful for us to read is that John lays out things that are true, not just for that church in Ephesus, but they're true for the church here in Walla Walla. What is it that we need to know? I mean, really need to know what's vital for us. He lays it out in, in a really meaningful way, and he gets right down to the core of what is most important, what's critical for us to know and to experience. And that's why we're going to be spending our time in, <coughs> in this book over the next few weeks. It tells us what's most important 
for us to focus on. So let's read the beginning of 1 John again, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's how John starts off. It, it kind of feels like you walked in the movie a few minutes late and you're trying to catch up, like, uh, who's this guy? Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about? It's a very unusual way to start a letter. In fact, it's been described as a grammatical tangle, or another writer described it as a grammatical obstacle course. That sounds like fun, right? It, it, it's complicated, but, but one thing that helps us understand is he's talking about himself a bit. You notice he uses the word we uh, here four times just in these first two verses, five if you count the us at the end of verse two. And so who, who is we exactly? The only time you see something repeated in the Bible, you want to pay attention to it. That's a clue that there's something being emphasized. It's probably important. And so right here at the beginning, there's this we. In order to figure out who we is, there's a, another clue in verse 2. John says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. So there's a we, now there's a you, and, and this helps us start to understand this grammatical tangle just a little bit. We know that John is writing. He's writing to the church, so that means that you is the church. He's proclaiming to you about eternal life, helping this church really know what's true and what's real. And so knowing that you meets the church body helps us understand who we is in this passage. And the passage says about we some interesting things. It says, we have heard that which was from the beginning. We have seen Him with our own eyes. We've touched Him with our own hands. He's talking about Jesus. He starts off with something vital. Jesus. He, he, he tells us that Jesus was from the beginning. In other words, Jesus has no beginning. Jesus is with God. He is God. And yet John and these other apostles, that's the we, they've seen Him and they touched Him. This person, Jesus, who was with the Father and then was with them. John and these other leaders are now proclaiming to you, to the church, so that we it's a pretty important group. It's, it's leaders of the church. It's eyewitnesses to Jesus. People like John or people like Paul, these people who had the job of, of going and telling the world about this man who was also God, who was raised from the dead. So this letter starts with a bang, and part of the bang is simply that it comes from a person who has authority, real authority. He knows what he's talking about. He was an eyewitness. He saw, he, he heard, he touched he encountered the resurrected Jesus in a very real way. And since John has all this authority, then what he decides to talk about has some importance. I mean, here's this church facing confusion, facing challenges. They need somebody to cut through the noise and tell them what's most vital. What do we really need to know? And John starts off talking about the most important thing, Jesus. But he also talks about another group. There's another little group that's referenced right here at the beginning of the book. There's this we, these church leaders. There's you, the church body. But look at the beginning of verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, talking about Jesus, we proclaim to you 
so that you may have fellowship with us, us all together. So John's not writing to create some kind of division between himself and the rest of the church. You know, he writes so that they can all be together, so that every one of us can know, really, really know what we need to know, so that we can all play a vital role in the church. We can all have fellowship. That's the word he uses here. And that idea right there, fellowship, that's a critical piece of what we need to know and experience. It's our first vital sign. Fellowship, that's one of the ways that we know the truth about Jesus. Fellowship is one of the ways that we know that we're saved, that we're a part of the community of faith. Not just a you, but part of an us. That that's exactly what John is writing about here. He says, that which we have seen and heard, again, talking about Jesus, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. His desire is that all of us would have our lives changed by that fellowship. Our priorities are realigned. Our relationships changed. Everything changed because of this fellowship. And now, this word fellowship, it's such an important idea throughout the whole New Testament. It's a, it's a word you see in all kinds of places. Uh, one of the most well-known, maybe, is right at the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. There's this description of the early church, and it says, "...they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching." to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So the idea of fellowship there is, is partly just that the church made a commitment to gather together. The early church made fellowship one of their priorities. They looked to each other for love and encouragement, the, the whole community of faith holding each other up in love. There's mutual care and support that comes from just being together. That's part of what this idea of fellowship means. And I think we can all recognize that kind of fellowship. You know, it's the kind of relationships we want to have here at church, loving each other well, meeting each other's needs, developing close relationships with each other. Uh, but, it, but it's kind of hard to quantify. Like, we can see it when it happens, but we can't always make it happen. You know, we can't, like, how do you know when you really have that kind of fellowship? How do you know when your, your friendship is, is strong enough or, or deep enough or, or loving enough? Well, that's part of the reason that John writes. Remember, he wants the church to, to know, to really know that they have fellowship is vital. He wants them to understand what's most important. And that's part of the reason that John begins his letter talking about fellowship. But what he does is he clarifies what fellowship is really all about. So even though this, this idea, this word fellowship shows up almost 20 different times in the New Testament, the way that John talks about it here is very unique. You know, for us... Fellowship is one of these kind of churchy words that people toss around a lot. And I, thought, I saw a Facebook post even not long ago, and it was just some friends having dinner together, you know, people sitting around having dinner and nothing unusual about that. A little caption on the picture said, what a time of fellowship. Like they're Christians and they're having dinner, so therefore it's, it's fellowship, right? It's one of these Christian words that gets tossed around. In fact, it's so... Uh, uh, tossed around, so common, a lot of us probably even know the Greek word that, that, that's here, that's translated as fellowship, koinonia. Yeah, you've heard that word before. I went to a coffee shop called koinonia one time. I mean, it's just coffee, but, you know, whatever. We get, this word gets watered down, so it's almost meaningless. It, it makes me think about something I saw just recently. Uh, there's this, this wall in Calgary in Canada. It's, it's a public work of art just on the wall and, and there's this brick wall, and built right into the wall is this piece of public art. We've got a, a picture of it here. It says, this feels so real. 
And what's fascinating about this wall is that it's made of astroturf. It's artificial grass. So this artist is pointing out the reality that a lot of us live with. We substitute the artificial for something real. We all know we want something real. We want things that are true and real and right. We want to have those things locked into our lives so we know for sure what we have is real. But so often we settle for astroturf. We settle for something that feels so real but has no life in it. And that's very much the way it is with fellowship. We all want the the benefits, we want the joy that comes from that, just like John talks about, but we don't want to go all in on it. So we come to church and we kind of skirt around the sidelines instead of getting involved in a growth group or, or serving in a ministry team where we make real relationships. Or maybe we come to church but we keep other people just at an arm's length, not really wanting to get into genuine relationships, real fellowship, really caring for others, being known by them. We settle for astroturf, even though our heart is longing for something real. So let me just ask you, where in your life are you settling for astroturf, missing something real and true and transformative because you've settled for something that's just easy and safe but has no life in it? You know, astroturf is actually part of the reason that John wrote this letter. I mean, not real astroturf, but some astroturf kind of thinking and teaching had invaded this church. Some things that seemed good, that seemed so real, but were in fact just dangerous distractions. That's why John spends his time right at the very beginning of this letter talking about the reality of Jesus, this person that he saw with his eyes, he looked upon, he touched with his hands. But this false teaching had invaded the church there. There was an individual named Serenthus, lived at the same time as John, and he was peddling astroturf to anybody who would listen. He was denying the reality of Jesus. Instead, he just wanted people to focus on their own experiences, listen to their heart. He was saying, hey, you don't need to worry about the person of Jesus. That was a long time ago. You need to focus on what's right now, your own experiences. Well, that's just substituting something real for something that's a dangerous lie, astroturf. So here's this guy, this so-called teacher coming in and saying, well, Jesus didn't really suffer all that stuff. He didn't really die on the cross. It was all all spiritual, not real. And John writes them and says, no, don't believe the lie. I saw it. I was there. And you got to understand that for us, thousands of years later, this is still really important. The reality of Jesus is critical for us to wrestle with because if none of it's real, if Jesus' suffering wasn't real, then when you and I suffer in this life, it's meaningless, it's hopeless. When you and I face criticism in this life, we can't look to the one who was despised and rejected by men, the one who carried our sorrows. If none of that is real, then when things get hard here, all we have to hold on to is astroturf, and it just slips right out of our hands. We're we're left with nothing. It's hopeless. If there's no resurrection, then there's no hope for things to get any better than they are right now. Everything rises and falls on the reality of Jesus. That's one of the reasons that right thinking about Jesus is so important. It gives us hope and life and light in a very dark world. If we give up on on good theology, on right thinking, 
we're just harming ourselves most of all. We stop growing and learning, leaning into a life of Christ. We're just giving up on ourselves first and foremost. We're settling for astroturf instead of something with real substance that we can really build our lives on. And fellowship is one of the ways that we know that we're in the truth. It's a vital sign. Fellowship is such a, a big kind of nebulous concept. I mean, it's the idea of sharing. It's the idea of having mutual interests. It's the idea of close communion. It's all these things. But it's one of these things that helps us understand what's real and true. And it's more than just dinner with friends because that's something you could do with anybody. Atheist, Christian, everybody has to eat, right? So what is it about fellowship that's so important that John would open this letter with it? What makes fellowship a vital sign? Well, this word fellowship, koinonia, if you prefer, it has some real nuanced meaning, but there's three aspects of it that I want to highlight. And the first one of these is partnership. Partnership means you, me, we're all together, working together. Each of us has a part to play. That's part of fellowship. We're all willing to stick it out, stick together. We're all invested in what God wants to do here you know, you don't need me to tell you this, but this has been a, a wild, unprecedented time in the church, I mean, the whole world, really, but there are more divisive issues facing us today than maybe there have ever been. I don't know. And so when we talk about fellowship, it's got to be more than just a cup of coffee together. It's got to be a genuine knitting together of our hearts, a genuine partnership where each of us is invested in the others. We're all working to make this faith family happen. It takes all of us partnering focused on what's vital. I mean, think about this. Despite all the, the stuff that has gone on in this church here in Ephesus, John and Jesus, both of them, had not given up. I mean, John's writing to them, telling them to keep at it, keep focused on what fellowship is all about. We read in Revelation, Jesus' own words of encouragement to this church. He, they have not given up on this church, and, and that's the attitude we want for ourselves. But it means we got to partner together. But fellowship is also more than just partnership. It's not just being united around a common cause. It's, it's more than that. It also means participation. That's another part of fellowship, participation. And this is where partnership gets real, kind of down and dirty. This is where each of us has a specific part to play. I mean, if you're here, you're here for a reason. God doesn't bring people to church uh, unless He's got a role for them to play. There's no understudies. There's no sidelines in the church. We all have a role to play. That's true of you, it's true of me, all of us. And, and maybe you're out there filling that role, you're doing the things that God wants you to do, which is wonderful. Keep it up. But maybe you're a person who just kind of comes on Sunday, gets some teaching, goes home. Well, John would argue that attendance without participation is not really fellowship. Participation is key. So partnership is part of what fellowship means. Participation is part of what fellowship means. There's one more part of fellowship that's critical. I told you this word has a lot of nuance. And the third part is intimacy. Intimacy is the third key idea to fellowship. It's, it's knowing other people. It's being known. Uh, sociologists who study these kinds of things, they talk about intimacy in terms of physical distance. Like the closer you are to a person physically, the more intimate you are. You can use your imagination on that. But uh, I think one of the great challenges with social distancing is that we've lost a certain amount of just intimacy, like we literally can't get that close to each other or not close enough to really know each other, get in each other's lives, and, and yet fellowship, true koinonia, 
the kind that's really real is even more intimate than social distancing. It's partnership, it's participation, it's, it's working side by side and arm in arm, but it's also intimate relationships, loving each other even though we're all messed up, we're all flawed. But I want us to notice in this passage in 1 John, there's one more element to fellowship, another critical piece. The, the fellowship that John's talking about, it extends even beyond each of us participating and partnering, living out intimacy. John says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And now look at the second part of the verse. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So see, the fellowship's not just horizontal. It's not just each of us partnering with each other, participating in a shared mission, intimately relating to each other. But true fellowship, true koinonia, that's more than astroturf, it's centered around God and His Son, Jesus. It's vertical fellowship, too. And in fact, this kind of vertical fellowship, Jesus Himself prayed about for you and me. You may not know this, but Jesus prayed for you in the Bible. At the very end of the, His ministry, just before He was arrested and killed, He was praying. And in that prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus prays for you. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message, the message of the apostles. That, that's the we here in 1 John. And this is what Jesus prays for us. He says that all of them may be one, that's intimate fellowship, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And finally, he prays, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, so he prays for our horizontal fellowship, our, our partnership, our participation, our intimacy, but he's also praying for vertical fellowship, that we would be finding our true sense of what's real and true in our relationship with God and His Son, Jesus. Not only our individual relationship with God, but our communal relationship with God, that us that we go back to as a faith family. Jesus prays for this. And, and John really just echoes what Jesus says. In fact, I love the way that uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, he paraphrases these Verses in 1 John, putting the passage in his own words as if John is saying this. From the very first time, we disciples laid our eyes on him, taking it all in, hearing with our own ears, seeing with our own eyes, staring at and studying him over the years, actually touching him with these hands. We saw it all happen before our very eyes. And we're now declaring what we witnessed incredibly, the infinite life of God Himself who took shape before us. And now I'm writing about it so all of you can experience what has transformed our lives, intimate communion with the Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the same satisfying joy we've known since we began walking with Him, that's why I'm writing you this letter today. Fellowship starts with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're so intimately connected to each other that they're one. And then Jesus turns around and prays that same oneness, that same fellowship for you and for me, that we would be one in that same way, one with Him vertically and one with each other horizontally. That's what He's saying at the beginning of this letter, our horizontal fellowship. It's a, it's a vital sign, it's a demonstration that we have a healthy vertical fellowship. 
in a world that is just grasping for astroturf, looking for something that feels so real, the real fellowship that we can experience as a church can show the world what's the truth, the antidote to all the falseness. The vertical fellowship we have been given through Christ, it shows up as this horizontal fellowship with each other, and it has the power to transform the world. As we wrap up our time together this morning, I want to take some time for us to, to check our vital signs. Where are you experiencing that true fellowship, and where are you settling for astroturf? As we check our vitals, as we examine our own hearts, I want us to revisit Jesus' own words to this church in Ephesus, this church that had such a history. Jesus tells them, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. So Jesus commends them. They've thought carefully about the truth. They've examined people like Serenthus, these other false teachers who are just peddling cheap astroturf, substitutes for the real thing. They've stood strong in the face of those kinds of tests. And Jesus goes on to commend them some more. He says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. Again, Jesus commends them for, for having some of these vital signs. They've got some fellowship and it seems they've been working at it. They've endured. They've borne up to keep Jesus at the center of their lives. And I think those things are true for a lot of us, too. This church has been through a ton of stuff together. And here we are, still at it, still at the work of following Jesus. We're leaning into God's Word, letting it change us. But not all that Jesus says to them is positive. He warns them with these last words, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. For us to be vital, to make fellowship a priority, it's about more than showing up on Sunday, learning, going home. It's about loving, not just learning, loving each other, which starts with that vertical fellowship. Each of us stoking the fire of our own love for Jesus, letting that love grow strong, so strong that it shows up as horizontal fellowship, genuine intimacy with each other. We can't settle for astroturf in our own spiritual lives, and we don't want it to show up in our faith family. In a moment, we're going to pray, and we're going to sing one more song together, turning our hearts towards the Lord in worship. And as we do that, I want us to use this time just to examine our own hearts. Where is our first love? Has something besides Jesus taken that place that really belongs to Him? Think Think about that. Or maybe the question you need to ask yourself is, is, what do I need to do to grow in fellowship? Maybe it's more participation for you. Maybe it's just letting yourself be more intimately known, leaning into that. What do you need to do to grow in fellowship with this faith family? And maybe for some of us, it's just embracing Christ for the first time, just uniting ourselves to Him, becoming one with Him, just like Jesus prayed for you. I want to encourage us all to use this time of prayer and then the time when we're going to sing to just open our hearts to Him. Let's pray. God, we uh, desire to be living in the truth. We desire to be doing the things that are most important. We want our first love to be you and your son Jesus who made the ultimate sacrifice for us, His death for our sins 
paying the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life uh, is foundational to us. And we want it to not just be something that happened in the past, some decision we made a long time ago, and now we're just sort of uh, going through the motions. No, we want that, that to be a passionate love in our hearts. And so we ask that you would uh, stoke that fire, renew that flame for us, Lord, and, and then let that show up as horizontal fellowship with each other, that we would be fully partnering with each other, fully participating in the work that you have here, fully uh, intimately connected with each other, knowing that we have those deep relationships with each other, Lord. And, and I want to pray especially for that person who's, uh, who's here and maybe doesn't have a relationship with you yet, that you would just, uh, just really penetrate that person's heart, give them what they need to be able to understand the truth about who you are and what you've done. And, and then even using this song that we're going to sing as, as a prayer back to you, Lord, that we would uh, just hear these words and echo them in our heart and, and find that place of love and commitment for you. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. You're worthy of every breath we could ever bring. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, we live for you. Oh. 